Our scripture this morning comes from 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verse 26, through chapter 12, verse 13. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan came to David and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare, and drink from his cup, and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. He took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did his thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in God's sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. For you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise a trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. <clears throat> David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. These are our sacred stories. Thanks be to God.
scripture begins. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. When the wife of Uriah, she has a name, and we even know it. Her name is Bathsheba. Biblical scholar Will Gaffney writes, only about 9% of the personal names in the Hebrew Bible belong to women. Only 9%. That's a little more than 100 names. Bathsheba's name is among the few. We know her name. Yet throughout the book of 2 Samuel, she's mostly identified by the men to whom she is wife or mother. The Gospel writer of Matthew, who decides against cultural norms to include women in Jesus' genealogy, still doesn't use her name, and instead identifies her with her murdered husband. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Her name is rarely used in the Bible, and perhaps worse than that, Preachers through the centuries have given her new names. Names like adulterous, seductive, notorious, master, manipulator. Do a Google search and you'll see what I mean. But she has a name. It's Bathsheba. Just a few verses before this morning's lection we read, it happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's palace, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. When you've heard this story, you've likely heard that Bathsheba was on the roof, as though she was an exhibitionist or inviting voyeurism. But the Bible says clearly that it's David who's on the roof. He sees Bathsheba. There's nothing in the text to suggest that she invites this or is even aware of it. David sees Bathsheba and then demands to know who she is, and the report comes back. This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. David would likely find these names familiar, maybe not Bathsheba's. It was a very patriarchal society after all. But Uriah is listed as one of the 30 mighty men, and Eliam is the son of one of David's counselors. But this knowledge does not stop David. The biblical account continues. David sent messengers to take her, and then it says, she came to him. This should not imply choice. He was the king. David takes her. He sees her bathing, and he takes her. There's no mention of consent. Choice and autonomy are not part of Bathsheba's story. As Richard Davidson in his article, Did King David Rape Bathsheba? A case study in narrative theology points out, once she is taken, there's no one she can appeal to for help or escape. This is a power rape. 
which a person in a position of authority abuses that power to victimize vulnerable persons sexually, whether or not the victim appears to give consent. He concludes, David the king, appointed by God to defend the helpless and vulnerable, becomes a victimizer of the vulnerable. Bathsheba returns to her house and later discovers that she's pregnant. Her husband is at war, her father is at war. There is no one to appeal to for help, no one other than the man who takes. And so she sends word to David, and David brings her husband Uriah home and tries to get him to have sex with his wife. Out of duty to God and country, Uriah refuses to sleep at home with his wife. So David's plan for cover-up is destroyed by Uriah's loyalty. David orders Bathsheba's husband to the front lines so that he'll be killed by enemy soldiers. Once Uriah is confirmed dead, David takes Bathsheba as his wife. David takes and takes. This is a violent story. The whole episode is set against the backdrop of war. Chapter 11 begins in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. But David, after dispatching his general Joab and all of his officers and regiments, David remained at Jerusalem. While his troops are ravaging the Ammonites and besieging the city of Rabbah, King David sets out to ravage and besiege the Mary Bathsheba. He objectifies and takes her, and then he has her husband murdered. And through all of this, he doesn't see that he's done anything wrong. The prophet Nathan is sent to David. But Nathan doesn't begin with confrontation. He begins with a story. He begins with connection and empathy. As we heard this morning, the Lord sent Nathan to David and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and birds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had brought. He brought it up and it grew up with him and his children. He used to feed it his meager fare and let it drink from his cup and let it lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guests who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no compassion. He had no pity. Nathan said to David, you, you are the man. 
David can understand the value of the lamb, but he fails to understand the value and the autonomy and the personhood of a woman. He's ready to convict this wealthy landowner for taking the land of the poor man, but he takes Bathsheba without another thought, except for cover-up. And the truth is that David is not alone. Not alone in not understanding the damage of his actions. Not alone in needing a prophet to expose the problem. Not alone in needing a story to invoke empathy. Consider the Me Too movement. It has taken and is taking our voices to create change. With so many willing to risk so much to share stories of sexual violence and abuse, women and men are gaining courage from solidarity. It's taken thousands of voices for believing the victim to begin to become the first response. We are seeing a shift, however, slowly toward believing, toward listening rather than doubting, blaming, and shaming. We still have a long way to go. And the stories are in us and among us, ready to be heard and shared, ready to be believed. So many stories. And the stories help us uncover abuses that must be changed. Once David sees, once he understands what he's done and the damage he has caused, what he does next is almost miraculous. He does not deny his behavior. He doesn't say anything about Bathsheba. He does not blame his behavior on her or anyone else. He's not defensive. Instead, David acknowledges what he has done. I've sinned against the Lord, he cries. This, my friends, is perhaps why David is, according to the Bible, a man after God's own heart. David sees his mistake, owns it, and then works for change. So much of what is happening in our country with racism seems to me to be connected with our general inability to accept blame to own our part, to see that we participate in systems of injustice. And instead of denying that reality, dedicating ourselves to changing, beginning with ourselves. We expend so much effort being defensive, denying and blaming. What if instead we owned our part? What if instead we worked for change? Imagine the progress we could make. I imagine I'm not alone in adding words to Karen's beautiful playing here in the prelude. It's me. It's me. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. What do we need so that we can acknowledge our part, see our culpability, know where we must, change where we can change.
Remember, David's a shepherd at heart. David understood a story about a beloved lamb. I wonder what we need to hear, to see, to experience, to understand where we're failing, where we must change, what we must do. I've been trying to reduce my consumption of single-use plastics. The pictures of floating islands of plastic in our oceans with captions like, there's no away to throw away. The pictures of sea turtles wrapped in plastic or injured by straws. These are helping to hold up a mirror for me, helping me to choose to be part of reducing single-use plastic waste. The Covenant Book Club is finishing How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kennedy. He uses stories often about himself and his own racism to help us to see ourselves and our racism. He holds up a mirror and helps us to move out of wallowing in identities of racist or not racist and moves us instead toward actions, actions that are anti-racist. Sometimes it's the response of another, the response that I admire and appreciate that shows me where my responses are lacking, that holds up a mirror and gives me a guide for how I want to be next time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who resisted the Nazis with his very life, once said, nothing is more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sins. The Apostle Paul talks about speaking the truth in love to each other. We all have failings, and we need a mirror. We all need a community that will help us to see. We all need prophets. There are plenty of prophets around these days. When I consider our current prophets, I think of the prophetic voices in the Black Lives Matter movement. So many calls to open our eyes and see, to finally take an honest look at the racism in ourselves and in our country. I think of Reverend Dr. William Barber helping us to see our part in the poverty epidemic. I think of Dr. Peter Houghton as here in Houston, calling us all to see our COVID-related choices and the impact our choices are having on our community. I think of the prophetic voices calling for environmental justice, especially of so many Native Americans who are helping us to see the land and the water as sacred. I think of so many calls and so many stories and so many invitations to see my part, to be convicted, and then to move into action and change. It is tempting to deny, to deflect, to blame. But when we see our part, when we own our guilt, then we can actually be part of solutions. It's important to remember the difference between shame and guilt. As I mentioned in the Time for Children, guilt is I did something bad, but shame is believing that you are bad. Guilt can be helpful. Guilt makes us uncomfortable and that discomfort can compel us to be curious about 
changes. Shame is not helpful. Shame keeps us stuck, makes us believe that we cannot change. When we focus on our choices, on our behavior, we tap into empathy, we tap into curiosity, we create an environment for change. Shame focuses on self, on identity. It's labeling ourselves as stupid, as bad, as failures. Guilt focuses on behavior and consequences. So let me say it again, one more time. And I'll say it again next week. You, my beloved, you are good. You are good. You are loved. You are capable of change. So this day, may Bathsheba inspire us to listen and believe. May Nathan inspire us to hold up mirrors, to speak truth with empathy, to tell stories that need to be given voice. And may David inspire us to own our part, to see the damage that we've done or are doing, and to change. And may we know that while we may 